You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. And the vaccination rollout means that we heard about a faster than expected reopening from Taoiseach Micheál Martin last night. From Monday week, the inter-county ban is lifted. Hairdressers and personal services are back. Three households can meet up outdoors, click and collect returns, along with religious services and cultural institutions. We'll hear from the Taoiseach after eight. First, here's some reaction to last night's announcement from the streets of Lanesborough and County Longford, where our Midlands correspondent Kieran Malouli spoke to people about the reopening news. There are times when you're standing here, you wonder, is, is it Christmas Day? that there's absolutely nobody on the street. You look up and down the town and you see nothing. So now we're looking at an opening. We're looking at boats getting back on the river. We're looking at people getting back to work. We're looking forward with a great excitement now. The big thing for me is that the Shannon will be open and the boats will be able to come and we'll be able to start living a proper life again with, obviously, caution. So, yeah, I suppose I'm really, really delighted with tonight's announcements. I think it's great. Well, like a lot of... um men uh, during lockdown I grew a beard and uh, I'm delighted to know that the barbers are going to open because I need my beard trimmed so that was good news what did you not like about what was announced today uh, you're also a publican so maybe you might have expected to get open a bit earlier would you yeah but look as you you understand at this stage it's, it's been tough it's been a really tough year uh, there is some light at the end of the tunnel we're open outdoors only on the 7th of June and I'm hopeful that Fingers crossed that things will be getting back to normal, get inside pubs and restaurants by around the 7th of July. My family are actually in Wicklow and Dublin. In fact, I have a sister who is in care in Dublin and um, she is deaf, so I can't speak to her on the phone. So it'll be magnificent to appear at her door uh, at least once a week. Lots of happy voices there in Lanesborough and on primetime last night, Thánis Dalia Varadkar said the Chief Medical Officer and Neffet have an emergency break which they could freeze reopening if the situation takes a turn for the worse. India had a first wa- had one wave and the government at the end of that appears to have concluded that they were out of the woods. Um, that was a mistake. Um, we've had... Uh, three waves uh, and we're not saying that we're out of the woods Uh, we're saying this is still a precarious situation Um, still 70% of adults not vaccinated uh, and you know at least until pretty much everyone is vaccinated we're still going to be battling this virus and even when everyone is vaccinated this virus will be with us uh, perhaps for eternity and certainly with us somewhere in the world so it is going to require ongoing vigilance and uh, there is an emergency break and if things go off track or go horribly wrong uh, the CMO and Neffet are in a position to say to us that we have to stop or we have to have to, have to freeze reopening. I hope that doesn't happen but that is is there as a possibility. Okay. So the caution as well as the hope there from the Thánaiste on prime time last night. Our political correspondent Paul Cunningham uh, joins us and Paul uh, Hope, yes, and a lot of people really, really happy about that, but also the caution there. There is a handbrake. Uh, it's still a lot more than we were expecting earlier in the week, isn't it? Yeah, it was. And um, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin was echoing something of what um, Leo Varag or vice versa. Um, it had been a tone which was struck by Micheál Martin in which he'd been speaking about how they were moving more quickly than had been expected in opening things up in May and signalling what was going to happen in June and July. Yes, at the same time, they had assessed the risk of doing too much too quickly. And at the news conference, I asked uh, Micheál Martin to explain that. And he basically put it that there were two parts regarding what was due to happen in May 
All of these were anchored in public health advice and when it came to June and July they were effectively being presented as options which will be reconsidered in light of new information from NEFIT. Mm -hmm. And he said that the May events were deemed to be low to medium risk. So basically he has a plan which is the backing of the Chief Medical Officer in NEFIT and on that basis they were able to give the big green light. What's the political reaction been from opposition and from backbenchers? Well, um, I guess from backbenchers' point of view, it's all gone down very well. You know, good news always does go down well. And the coalition parties were able to tell the country that they were being released from their COVID chains. And from a Fianna Fáil perspective, there was a, a degree of happiness with the cam delivery from the Taoiseach and the television and the news conference and that he also maintained that um you know, in some interviews. I think from the opposition's point of view, it's very hard to oppose popular measures. And in particular, when they've received the stamp of Neffet, Labour Party's answer was to say basically that you could have done better, you could have done more, articulating their sort of long-held view on antigen testing and how uh, how much of a big mm-hmm. game changer that could have been. And um, Social Democrats doing something similar. Um, Sinn Féin took a different strategy. Mary Lou MacDonald, their leader, projecting forward to the reopening of the economy on foot of um, some of these changes and basically pointing to the landmine of the issue of cutting supports. I mean, there were individual niggles and problems. Um, some TDs, you know, fearful that maybe not allowing people to have communions and confirmations in the month of May, um, that that could be a problem, accepting that, you know, there's an issue over people gathering and what happens, but they felt that, you know, that could be a problem for them in the constituency. But all in all, this was a, a good mm-hmm. day for the government, on you? Still lots of details, though, to work through and potential niggles, as you say, driving tests. Uh, again, the hospitality industries that don't have the space for outdoor dining and won't be able to reopen in June. Uh, The fact that pubs are opening after hotels and questions about the arts. Uh, Where might the, the potential controversies be there? I suppose it's a little bit like um, budget day in some ways. So you've got the big announcement, um, but it's only the following day that the problems emerge or, or you get a sense where the public actually stands on some of these issues. So I think an awful lot is going to come down to communication. I mean, you mentioned driving tests. There's a huge backlog there. So how long is it going to take to get these tests up and running so that people, um, for example, are able to get back into cars uh, and conduct their lessons, which will allow them to do the test? Mm-hmm. We know that essential workers are going to be uh, the first in the queue, well, how do you say who's an essential worker and who's not? And how long do you determine those who are waiting, who are the longest? Because apparently those in the non-essential workers are going to be prioritised. Hospitality, as you say, definitely a problem. You know, you know, ensuring the pubs are reopening after hotels. What about the row of eating inside and outside? Will that bubble up? And I- I- even in, in sectors which sometimes have been ignored, like the arts, what is going to be done for them? We heard about pilots that could be conducted both indoors and outdoor events but when and for what benefit I thought it was notable that the National Campaign for Arts you know on the one hand praised the government for or for referring to them but then had a five questions subsequently which was basically coming down to the who the when the why and how mm-hmm. so I think communications are going to be absolutely key. Now of course we've reopened before and shut down before uh, Leah Varadkar talking about the situation in India at the moment. The difference we're hoping this time, fingers crossed, is the vaccines. Is the 80% target still the target for the end of June? 
Yeah, um, 82% of people are either receive the first vaccination or get a, a date for a vaccination. Um, Micheál Martin said that is still the plan. Liv Raker said that is still the plan. And the big hope in government is that, you know, as you say, vaccine is the huge game changer this time. And what they're hoping is that if the immunologist, Professor Luke Neil is right, we're going to be awash with vaccines by June, which will enable us to get those numbers. I think that the key moment will come next week. The HSE is changing its vaccination plan on foot of NIAC advice and so we'll find out more detail on that about this is the 27th time they've changed it but we'll, we'll have a good sense um, what happens next week about how those um, uh, targets are going to be reached so we'd probably be in a better position to uh, make a call on that then. All right Paul thank you for that that's our political correspondent Paul Cunningham. We hadn't seen excitement like it in months. The prospect of an election, a by-election no less, all the drama. How will it work during a pandemic? Who will run? Who will win? So many questions prompted by the resignation of Fine Gael TD for Dublin Bay South, Owen Murphy. Fiacra Okiana reports. It's always been a really colourful constituency. It's always very lively. I think that this will be a by-election that will be very, very closely watched. Owen Murphy's resignation as a Fine Gael TD means the constituency now faces a by-election before November. And with party and personal futures at stake, political commentator Lise Hand says the upcoming bout has all the makings of another epic political dust-up. It's a fairly well-got constituency, really. A lot of leafy suburbs. It's probably best known, though, for the uh, rumble in Ranala when bitter constituency rivals, PD leader Michael McDowell and then Green Party leader John Gormley had a a couple of very famous set twos. Big row broke out uh, between them in the triangle in Ranala. Can I answer this? Can I answer this? While voters are watching politicians, politicians will be watching local issues. But unlike some constituencies, in Dublin Bay South, no single issue will be the knockout punch. Locally here, there's a big issue around a cycle lane out on uh, Sandy Men's Strands. During the pandemic, social gatherings like what we've had in Portobello over the weekend, horrendous scenes after. They're destroying everybody's lives. Homelessness is at, is at the top, really. Absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely appalling. Now, I mean, there are tents on the canal again. Yeah. And I agree, one. because yeah. what hope have they got? And there are all these apartments flying up all over mm. the place, which even people that have two jobs, they can't afford to get a mortgage. Mm-hmm. There's so many people, like, all overcrowded in flats, and there's apartments and all getting built that it should be more affordable, the same way down at the Barrow Street and Bowlands Mill. They were supposed to give a certain amount of social and affordable housing and they didn't. For politicians, it means a political campaign headache. Any candidate will have to decide which areas to focus on. But while they are making up their minds, so are voters. Kate O'Connell would probably be one of the favourites um, at this stage. She wasn't that far off in the last election, so I'd say she'd be one of the forerunners. But I, I, I heard, um, is it Ivana Bacic? I think she's interested in, in that and I think she would be excellent. I think Sinn Féin might have a good chance. Uh, I think maybe people are tired of this government and think it's, and their plans seem to be same old, same old. And if it wasn't already complicated enough, Dublin Bay South has a further layer of intrigue, with many potential candidates facing real competition, not just outside their parties, but inside them as well. Lise Hand says Fine Gael is a prime example. 
It's going to be fascinating politically because one would say the obvious candidate for Fine Gael would be Kate O'Connell. But Kate O'Connell would not be seen as an ally of Leo Varadkar. Local candidate James Gagan would be much more seen in the Leo Varadkar mould. So too are the Greens and Dublin Mayor Hazel Chew. It was felt by many party members that she should have been on the shared ticket with the party leader Eamon Ryan last time and wasn't and that led to a lot of bad blood. The blood has got even badder since, as we've seen over over the shenanigans over the Shannon elections and it could get very messy. Maybe if the doors were closed to her, she might decide to have a solo run as an independent. Fianna Fáil is also one to watch. Yeah, Jim O'Callaghan might be in a bit of a bind because if they run a good, strong candidate who does very well, uh, that'll be good for him, but it might spell trouble then next time out if the Fianna Fáil vote, which is never particularly strong here, were to recede even further. Um, and if they run somebody and it's a total disaster, that's not great for them either. And other parties have their own dilemmas. I think that Labour would actually feel that they're in with a shout on, on this one. And Sinn Féin, well, whether there's a second Sinn Féin seat is extremely dubious and I think it would be highly unlikely. I know there has been some talk about Lynn Boylan, but she lives in Dublin Midwest. By-elections are about local issues. There is a real possibility almost all candidates who ultimately run will be women. There is a slim chance that every candidate in this by-election would be a woman. I think it would make for an absolutely fascinating contest. All of which means, after a year of pandemic politics, the Dublin Bay South by-election promises a return to some good, old-fashioned political drama. I mean, I kind of hope that we'd have a, you know, schmozzle in Sandy Mount or a eruptions in Ring's End to kind of batch up with the rumble in Ranala. I think it's going to be fascinating and I think for people who are a bit starved of politics over the last while I think it'll be a bit of a spectator sport as well Lee's hand ending that report by Fiacra Okiana We're going to Israel now and dozens of people have been crushed to death at an overcrowded religious bonfire festival there. Tens of thousands of ultra-Orthodox Jews thronged to the Galilee tomb of a second century rabbi for annual commemorations that included all-night prayer, mystical songs and dance. Now I'm joined from Israel by Stephen Farrell who's Reuters bureau chief there but before we join Stephen let's just hear from the scene. Uh, and just some sa- see- sounds from the scene there. Stephen Farrell, good morning and thank you for joining us. And I know you've been up all night covering this unfolding tragedy. Uh, but at this stage, what is known about what happened? Well, it looks like 44 people at least were killed. Um, it was late uh, overnight. Um, the, uh, to be honest, we were up covering some uh, Palestinian election news and suddenly news broke. So I think many Israelis will be waking up this morning not, not even knowing that it happened. Um, what seems to have happened is that uh, tens of thousands of Israelis, uh, religious Jews, uh, were up in the north, in the Galilee. Um, they'd gone to a, uh, the grave of a second century uh, rabbi, a mystic, uh, it's one of the holiest sites in Judaism, um, and it is just—it seems to be a, a tragic combination of um, clearly uh, lots of people, um, a country coming out of coronavirus, a very narrow passageway, um, and uh, and things went things went horribly wrong. There was a crush. The initial reports were that the, a grandstand had collapsed. Um, at a very popular pilgrimage site. Um, ambulance people later said, no, that's not what happened. It was just a sheer crush of numbers. 
And do we know at this stage, uh, is it men, women and even children at this site? Um, there were certainly um, men and women there. Um, I was looking at the, very carefully at the social media video that, uh, that was coming out of it at the beginning, and it, it, there seemed to be a, a narrow passageway. And from what we could see, um, the, it, was, it, was, it was hundreds and hundreds of men. It was, it was maybe in the men's section, but you'd appreciate that everything's a little unclear. It was late at night. The investigations are still at a very early stage. What, uh, what, what happened was helicopter were sent in, the Israeli army was mobilized, um, and people were, were sent to hospitals all over northern Israel. Um, and and the, it, it, because there were so many, and it's quite a remote site, um, they were being ferried away still hours later. Israel has had a very successful vaccine rollout, but, but it still begs the question, why were tens of thousands gathered for, for this commemoration? Well, there were certainly uh, early reports um, that some safety advice had been ignored. Um, and all those sort of questions are going to be asked. Uh, I mean, it was, we believe, one of, if not the largest um, public gathering in Israel um, since uh, the, the, the pandemic. Um, lockdowns have been eased. Restrictions have been relaxed. Vaccinations uh, are a large part of that. Um, but both for you know coronavirus reasons and clearly for safety reasons, um, questions will be asked about the numbers, questions will be asked about the infrastructure. 44 dead. Uh, is it expected that that number could rise at this stage uh, or, or have people now been uh, safely evacuated from that area? Well, our own reporters, um, uh, photographers, video journalists, um, were as they were arriving at the scenes two or three hours later, um, hundreds were still leaving the scene, looking for buses, looking for cars, dazed, stunned. Um, so I, th- I think we, we, our understanding is that in addition to the dead, there were um, dozens critically ill. So that number could rise. And what about political reaction? I, I have seen the Prime Minister quoted as saying, uh, this is a, a heavy disaster. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, we, I understand Prime Minister Netanyahu is on his way up to the scene uh, at, the, at the moment. Um, at the moment, grief is the reaction. I'm um, shock and grief. Stephen Farrell from uh, Reuters in Israel. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, Arlene Foster says she leave politics after the DUP heave that forced her resignation yesterday. The question is who will succeed her and what that means for the DUP and the future of the Stormont executive. More on that from our northern editor, Vincent Kearney, in a moment. First, here's a reminder of the problems that have beset the First Minister over the past few months. to address the House. Mrs Arlene Foster, the First Minister. Mr Speaker, it is with great humility and an enormous sense of responsibility and indeed the imagination of endless potential for Northern Ireland that I affirm the pledge of office and take up this post today. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom and we will not accept any form of regulatory divergence which separates Northern Ireland uh, economically or politically from the rest of the UK. There won't be uh, a freestanding Irish Language Act. We've always made that very clear. This is an incredibly hostile and aggressive act by the European Union bloc. They are trying to stop the supply of vaccine, a vaccine designed to save lives into the United Kingdom. 
For years, we were told after the European Union referendum vote that there couldn't be a hard border on the island of Ireland. And in one fell swoop, they have put that hard border in place. So there's a need to focus on it. And there's a need to find a way forward uh, in a calm way. But for me, the best way to deal with it is to scrap the protocol and to look at what the risk is to the European single market, because for me, it's negligible. I am calling on the Chief Constable to consider his position. I think there's a real crisis in policing tonight, in justice and in the rule of law. I have sought to lead the party and Northern Ireland away from division and towards a better path. There are people in Northern Ireland with a British identity. Others are Irish. Others are Northern Irish. Others are a mixture of all three and some are new and emerging. We must all learn to be generous to each other, to live together and to share this wonderful country. The future of unionism and Northern Ireland will not be found in division. It will only be found in sharing this place we are all privileged to call home. Arlene Foster, as she announced her resignation as DUP leader and as First Minister, our Northern Editor Vincent Kearney joins us. And it was a very human resignation speech, but equally, as we heard in the comments before that from Arlene Foster, in her own words, it was her own political miscalculations in the end, wasn't it, Vincent, in backing Boris Johnson, backing Brexit, that cost Arlene Foster her job. Is that a fair assessment? It is indeed, Anya. There are many factors in this, uh, some recent factors. Um, a vote last week on, on gay conversion therapy, um, the imposition of abortion laws uh, by the British government, um, things that, that annoyed uh, grassroots unionists and certainly annoyed the elected members of the DUP. But it was that stance on, on the Brexit and the protocol that has really cost her. She, she backed Boris Johnson. Uh, she initially said that the protocol could give Northern Ireland the best of both worlds with, with a foot in the internal UK market and a foot in the European single market. She was quickly forced into an about turn in that. So many grassroots unionists and certainly loyalists blamed her for backing Boris Johnson, blamed her and Nigel mm-hmm. Dawes and others within the party. They said they got the, Bre- the Brexit calculations wrong. And in recent weeks, there was graffiti on, on walls of some loyalist areas saying, uh, no surrender, Ulster is British, the Irish sea border must go. But on a number of occasions, there was also graffiti appearing saying, Arlene Foster must go. So she was closely associated uh, with the protocol. And many unionists and, and loyalists on the street have identified the protocol as their main target now. They want rid of the protocol because in their eyes it has weakened the relationship east-west. It threatens Northern Ireland's constitutional position within the United Kingdom. As the leader of unionism, Arlene Foster's job was to ensure that uh, Northern Ireland remains strong within the UK so opponents within the party within Lotus grassroots would say that actually what she did was weaken it. So that was the big fault line. The two names being mentioned as frontrunners to replace her, Edwin Poots and Geoffrey Donaldson. Uh, Talk to us about uh, the character and history of each of those men briefly, Vincent, if you wouldn't mind, and whether there are other names uh, who may come forward. Uh, there are indeed other names because it depends on what kind of model the DUP goes for. Does it go for what it's always had before, which is a party leader would also be first minister 
or does it split those roles? And I might split those roles in search of different kinds of votes. Edwin Poots, uh, very religiously conservative. This is a man who believes in creationism, does not believe in the theory of evolution. A man who, as health minister, tried to uphold a ban on gay people giving blood. So in religious terms, viewed as quite fundamentalist, evangelical and very hardline. Um, also, people who know him would say he's pragmatic and political and is willing to do a deal if it makes sense. Jeffrey Donaldson, very different. Uh, more, viewed as more modern, uh, less socially conservative, more palatable, certainly to um, people uh, in the Republic of Ireland. He's a very accomplished media performer and they put him out on all the big issues if there's anything sensitive they put Jeffrey Donaldson out because he's viewed as a more sort of moderate voice of the DUP but if they decide to go for a hybrid model it could be Edwin Poots as First Minister. If they then go for someone else as leader of the party, it could be Jeffrey Donaldson. It could also be Gavin Robinson, just 36 years of age, 14 years younger than, than Arlene Foster. He's also viewed as, as someone who's forward-looking um, because there's a realisation only within the party that with a border poll coming at some point in the future, they know it's looming on the horizon. They need to reach out beyond their base. They need to reach out to that Catholic unionist tradition that exists in Ireland. They need to reach out to that soft nationalist vote because if this becomes a straight sectarian headcount in the future within Northern Ireland and certainly in the island of Ireland if this becomes a sectarian headcount the DUP and Eunice know they will lose that headcount so they want someone who can reach out they believe Jeffrey Donaldson can do that they believe possibly Gavin Robinson can do that and I remember a speech he made uh, Gavin Robinson more than 10 years ago now on in Belfast City Hall he was talking about the Orange Order and the 12th of July celebrations and he went off on a tangent and he said many Catholics um, view the Orange Order uh, in a particular way and he said, and they view the lambeg drum as a symbol of the Orange Order and of the Protestant faith. It's that huge big drum. You see men beating yeah. with big wooden sticks. It, used, it was used to terrify uh, their enemies going into battle. You could hear it from miles around. And he said what most people outside the Orange Order don't realise is that drum was the instrument of the Dutch Royal Guard. And he said the Dutch Royal Guard was a Catholic regiment that fought for King William of Orange. So he said what most people mm. don't realise is the iconic symbol of the Orange Order was in fact a Catholic musical instrument. So he was saying that in his view that shows how the cultures can mix together. So that was more than 10 years ago and Gavin Robinson oh, right. was, was trying to reach out in his own way to the, that Catholic unionist tradition. Uh, they know this is the big debate that's coming down the line. The view certainly internally is that Edwin Pooch will be very hard line in relations with Sinn Féin and his relations with the Irish government. So he will play to the hard line within Northern Ireland, but they know that they need someone else to reach out beyond the unionist community and across the border. Northern editor Vincent Kearney, thank you. Efforts to put out huge fires in Killarney National Park in Kerry, which have been burning since Friday night, continue this morning. Around a third of the National Park has been burnt as a result of the wildfires. Earlier, Chief Fire Officer Andrew McElwraith told us that just one high-level fire remains in the east ridge of Pepper Mountain. Last night, Rory Hodd, an ecologist and botanist living in the Killarney area, spoke with our reporter Amy Nereida about the immediate loss of wildlife and vegetation as a result of the blazes. The main two kind of habitats there in the first place are heath habitat, so wet heath and dry heath, and then the old Atlantic oak woodlands. In terms of wildlife, there would be lots of deer in that area, lizards, birds, a lot of nesting birds this time of year as well, so... 
it's likely that a lot of bird nests would have been lost and a lot of other animals would have been killed because they would have really been you know they wouldn't have had time to to escape to um other parts um before the fire came in some kind of vegetation will come back very quickly but you know it won't necessarily be the vegetation that was there originally and if the vegetation that comes back is highly modified degraded you lose a lot of species that won't come back in and also the vegetation that often comes back in particularly in the heath areas actually is more flowerable so we need to bring in legislation to to, to make you know tougher pe- penalties for burning particularly out of season and i was you know up in up in that area now just a few months ago doing some work and and just to yeah to see see the damage and the loss and it's quite um quite devastating really to see that Clarny-based ecologist and botanist Rory Hodd there. I'm joined now by Minister of State for Heritage Malcolm Noonan who will be on his way shortly to Killarney National Park. Good morning Minister. Good morning Angus. Rory Hodd as you heard calling for tougher penalties for setting illegal wildfires which we know are a problem at this time of year. To be clear we don't know the cause of the Killarney National Park fire at this stage but is that part of the line of inquiry for the investigation? Yes, yeah, certainly when, when we look at this in a, in a week or so's time, we certainly have to consider that. I mean, this is absolutely devastating for our national park. And we have fires blazing in Mayo, in the Morns, in the Black Stairs. And as Rory has said there, it's de- really devastating to insects, to ground nesting birds, mammals, water quality, and also not to mention the, the carbon emissions. So we do have to consider this and we have to consider... Uh, looking at rewarding good practice and um, uh, in particularly with the, the next CAP strategic plan that we have to uh, give um, in, in these talks to give consideration to uh, rewarding uh, the value, the biodiversity value for heather and scrub and these type of habitats. I think that's really important. But the immediate challenge now is to bring the fire under control um, and to deal with that. And, and, and I think our teams are working uh, really, really hard on the ground over the last number of days to try and contain this fire. As you highlight there yourself, emergency services across the country dealing with a number of gorse fires uh, across the country. Are tougher penalties needed, do you think, or could they be part of the solution to this to help enforce, to help enforcement when it comes to wildfires? There's no doubt about that, and there have to be consequences for people who set these fires. They're not a natural phenomenon across the country, and I think that's uh, critical again as I said in relation to whether it be in this case it could be recreational it could be uh, non-agriculture related but if they are agriculture related I think we need there need to be consequences there for people who set these fires deliberately in terms of our response uh, we are I'm delighted uh, to be able to uh, we have an in- current intake of uh, wildlife rangers uh, we were due to take in 25 we will be doubling that to 50 and I think that's that's going to be an important uh, resource, additional resource of boots on the ground for, for rangers to work on these on the uh, on the ground with this In addition you're also working with government colleagues on an emergency multi-departmental response to the situation beyond additional rangers what, what does that response involve at this point? I think a number of things, uh, the agriculture issue we've mentioned, and I think the CAP strategic plan is going to be critical, but we also need to look at staycationing. The Taoiseach has said this is going to be the summer of of the outdoor uh, activity, and I think we need to have a coordinated action across government around messaging, around the use of our our nature reserves, our national parks, and the responsible uh, uh, use of those by by the public. Secondly, I think we need to look at roles we have. We're very grateful for the support of the Air Corps over the last number of days, but 
But I think particularly when we're stretched where there are multiple fires across the country, we do need to look at a future enhanced role for the Defence Forces. And that's something I will be uh, speaking to the Minister for Defence on in relation, in relation specifically to the Commission on the Future of the Defence Forces. Where are the opportunities that lie around de- uh, developing and embedding climate resilience into our system and ensuring that we have a quick, uh, rapid responses to incidences, particularly, as I said, where there are multiple fires uh, raging across the country. Kerry's Mayor Patrick O'Connor Scarthine has said that in the coming weeks and indeed months a great community approach may be needed to help repair and restore the park after this devastating fire. You mentioned an increased role for the Defence Forces. What sort of support is the government likely to offer in this regard? Are we likely to see soldiers roaming around the mountains for example? Well, we, we look at other jurisdictions, and in France, the Defence Forces have a role in actually, and, and our trained Defence Forces personnel are trained in um, actually uh, going out and managing these fires. As I said, I'm delighted with the support of Taoiseach and my colleague, Minister O'Brien, uh, to be able to increase the ranger intake to 50, which I think is, is badly needed. So that's a, a good response in terms of that. But I think the, the wider issue around that, around the use of, of communities. The, the metal has been a, a fantastic resource in Killarney. And I, I do think that when we debrief and look at the, uh, the, the, um, oh, the myriad of issues around the last couple of days, how we respond in a strategic and a coordinated way is going to be vital because these, these instances are going to continue. Aside of the issues of, of uh, deliberate and dis- indiscriminate burning uh, out of season, there, there we are looking at a changed climate, and I think right across the world we're seeing fires like this raging, and that I think it's really important that the state, the government, uh, has that resilience built into the system to, to manage them. And in the immediate aftermath of the fire, of course, it's, it's dealing with the fire, the safety protocols, restoring the situation as best as possible. But a big part of that is going to be the environmental impact. We're right in the middle of nesting season. Uh, we're in the middle of calving season for deer. We know that one of the fires yesterday, they managed to put out saving a place called Oak Wood, home to some of the oldest oaks in the country. But the environmental loss and impact, that's going to have to be assessed and addressed for some time to come. It is, and certainly, um, you know, we're, there's no doubt there's going to be, there's a hen harrier nesting site that's uh, destroyed, as far as I understand it. Uh, also, it's um, a really important habitat to ground nesting birds. We're relieved and, and, and fortunate that some of the that the ancient woodlands have been saved, and certainly uh, they managed to minimise damage to Tommy's Wood and other areas within the park. But I think over the next number of days, and once the fire is brought under control, we can have a, a detailed uh, consideration of the, the environmental impact. And it goes beyond the, the, the what's what's physically visible because it's damage to water quality, to soils, uh, destabilisation of soils. So it has a really a deep and residual impact over many, many years. Minister of State for Heritage Malcolm Noonan speaking with me a short time ago in relation to those wildfires in Killarney National Park, which it's hoped will be extinguished by the end of today. Now, international efforts are underway to help India as the country suffers critical oxygen shortages amid a devastating surge in COVID cases. India reported almost 350,000 more cases in the 24 hours to yesterday morning and another 2,767 deaths. However, the true figures are thought to be much higher. Dr. Harshit Singh Bhatti works at the Manipal Hospital in Delhi. He's been describing what conditions are like there. 
we are not able to provide oxygen to the patients and they are dying like means i don't want to compare but the situation is like have you seen the fish out of water the situation is same as the people who are dying struggling for oxygen they were not getting oxygen and they are dying on roads many of our patients need ventilator many of the patients need high flow oxygen but because uh, uh, one another patient is on the bed and they are on ventilator so we are not able to provide ventilator to other patients it is a when i when i am inside my uh, high dependency unit that is hdu so we are in the like we are in a uh, dual mindset that when when one patient expires we don't have a time to grieve for them we don't have a time to cry for them we just have to wrap up their body and just clean the bed and put another patient on that bed with the ventilator so that's why i have written on my social media also that we are now we are mental status is like that that we are um, feeling a dual dual sort of emotions one grief for my lost patient and a relief for my another patient which is gasping for uh, for breaths and we are putting them on ventilator in a hope that they might survive and we can save one patient that's Dr. Harshit Singh Bhatti at the Manipal Hospital in Delhi. Let's speak to Rahul Bedi. He's the Irish Times correspondent uh, based in New Delhi. Uh, Rahul Bedi, good morning. Thanks for taking our call today. Uh, good morning. The footage from India uh, viewing is very difficult, particularly for families here, for people here who have families in India. Can you describe what conditions are like there at the moment? Well, as the doctor said, uh, the situation is really apolitical. Uh, and uh, I mean, the people are waiting in, uh, in in queues outside hospitals. A lot of them are being turned away. Uh, and the grimmer side of the situation is really that uh, uh, cremations are being carried out in public parks, in parking lots. Uh, people are being buried in public parks because the uh, graveyards are, are overflowing. Uh, there's a waiting list uh, for cremation grounds. Uh, and as the doctor said, uh, people are struggling for oxygen. Uh, a lot of the hospitals all over the country, in fact, have oxygen for no reserve oxygen reserves of uh, no more than two or three hours, and scores and scores of people are dying uh, by the hour because uh, they just do not have either oxygen or uh, the ability to uh, get into any hospital. What is India going to do? Well, the uh, government is uh, trying desperately. I mean, the government is uh, really. Uh, responsible for this uh, for this catastrophe because uh, it's a combination really of hubris uh, of Mr. Modi's government, uh, which uh, in February and March had declared that they'd seen the end of the COVID, and uh, that India had battled COVID in a in a remarkable manner, and uh, they did not uh, anticipate a second wave, which was staring them really in the face. And um, they're now desperately scrambling around for oxygen from Russia, from Germany, from Europe, from the United States. And the Indian Air Force has been deployed to send its transport aircraft to get oxygen plants. Um, and hopefully something would, uh, uh, would work out by the end of the week. But uh, in the meantime, there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of patients who uh, are likely to uh, die. Rahul, thank you for talking to us. That's Rahul Bedi, Irish Times correspondent in New Delhi. 
president of the European Commission, and, er, Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has blamed sexism for an incident in Turkey earlier this month during which she was left without a chair at a meeting. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and the president of the EU Council, Charles Michel, took the two seats which were left for the leaders, forcing President von der Leyen to sit on a nearby sofa. Well, in scathing comments to the European Parliament, she questioned whether she would have been treated like this had she been a man. President David Sassoli, President Charles Michel, honorable members, I am the first woman to be president of the European Commission. I am the president of the European Commission. And this is how I expected to be treated when visiting Turkey two weeks ago, like a commission president. But I was not. I cannot find any justification for what I was treated in the European treaties. So I have to conclude that it happened because I am a woman. Would this have happened if I had worn a suit and a tie? In the pictures of previous meetings, I did not see any shortage of chairs. But then again, I did not see any women in these pictures, neither. Honorable members, many of you will have made quite similar experiences in the past, especially the female members of this house. I'm sure you know exactly how I felt. I felt hurt and I felt alone as a woman and as a European, because it is not about seating arrangements or protocol. This goes to the core of who we are. This goes to the values our union stands for. And this shows how far we still have to go before women are treated as equals, always and everywhere. Of course, I know that I am in a privileged position. I am the president of an institution which is highly respected all around the world. And even more important, as a leader, I can speak up and make myself heard. But what about the millions of women who cannot? Women who are heard every day in every corner of our planet, but neither have the power nor hold the office to speak up. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. We can talk now to Euronews correspondent Shona Murray. Shona, good to talk to you. Um, This was one of the most impassioned speeches of her tenure as European Commission president. Did it come as a surprise or was this speech expected? Well, we knew she was going to speak about it. and We knew that she was also furious and felt really humiliated by the situation. And you can see that in the footage when it takes place, she stands there and says, uh, as in, why am I left standing? Um, so we knew that she was going to discuss it. But we know that her spokespersons over the past few weeks have been trying to soften the tension between the two sides. So I think people were taken aback by how strident she was there. But also, you know, first and foremost, the fact that she said she felt hurt and that she felt alone because never before has a, a you know a senior politician, let alone a president of the European Commission, one of the most senior politicians in the world, admit to feeling hurt. And she's getting heavily, you know, commended for that, for speaking about how she felt in that situation, because, of course, she was essentially left alone because one of the most critical parts of that footage is Charles Michel, her counterpart, her equal in, you know, in terms of an official visit like that. 
he makes a beeline for the chair, takes the chair and leaves her standing. And of course, that is not the values that they were purporting to export during that visit, the whole visit. Remember, part of the key issue they were trying to discuss with President Erdogan was the fact that Turkey was withdrawing from the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women. They were talking about gender equality. And Shona, Charles Michel, he was there yesterday evening for this speech, wasn't he? He was sitting fairly close to her. He was, and, you know, he was quite humiliated by it. He's been heavily criticised. Now, she mentioned there uh, that it had nothing to do with protocol because part of his defence was that there was a strict interpretation on the Turkish side that the council president would get seniority. But in actual fact, as she said there in the treaties, the two, when it comes to an official visit, should be treated equally. But in actual fact, she said this has nothing to do with protocol. This is about gender equality and sexism, and we have a long way to go. He has apologised for it, you know, um, privately and publicly saying it would never happen again. But he's been hugely uh, scrutinised because his political reflexes, you know, were essentially wrong. They weren't great. You know, that's they're supposed to be in this together uh, as a unit to talk about European values, to talk about a lot of the belligerence that they've you know, felt from Erdogan. It should have been a team effort. And yet he left her standing there. And there's no denying that his reflexes were to essentially abandon her and make her feel like that. So he's, there's been calls for his resignation from women's groups and so on. But of course, that's not going to happen. But certainly, you know, he has gone down as uh, someone who didn't act in a way that is, you know, in tune with the values that he purports to have around gender equality. Okay, Shona, thanks a million. Shona Murray there, Euronews correspondent in Brussels. An unusual ceremony for an unusual movie year. Nomadland won Best Film, Best Director and Best Actress. Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor. No joy for Wolf Walkers from Kilkenny's Cartoon Saloon. Here's Best Actress, Frances McDormand. They didn't ask me, but if they had... I would have said karaoke because when you got voices like Leslie and Marcus and that we should have had a karaoke bar. Okay. Um, I have no words. My voice is in my sword. We know the sword is our work. And I like work. (laughs) Thank you for knowing that. And thanks for this. That's Frances McDormand, who won Best Actress at last night's Oscar ceremony. Our arts and media correspondent, Sinead Crowley, has all the details. Morning, Sinead. Winners first, then tell us about Nomadland. Yeah, Nomadland, I suppose, was the big winner last night because it got the three big awards, Best Picture, Best Director for Chloe Zhao and the Best Actress for Frances McDormand. So it was a big winner. Uh, hasn't been seen here yet, but it is going to be on streaming on Disney at the end of the month and then hopefully in cinemas, if, if and when cinemas open later in the summer. But no doubt people will be flocking to see it even on streaming when it opens here because they really are the big awards. And a lot of affection for the film. You know, it stars Frances McDormand, who has lost her job and goes out living in in a vehicle you know in becomes homeless and decides to go on the road in America and meets these other people who style themselves as nomads and decide to live this kind of alternative lifestyle and some of the actors in the film some of the people in the film are actually taken from real life they are people who really do live this life so it's interesting for a number of reasons usually the award of best film is left until last but this time it was best actor and he wasn't there what happened 
Yeah, big shock, as many people are saying, if you were, you know, making this series or this Oscars as a film, you probably wouldn't have ended it like this. But they did decide to end on the best actor. And of course, everybody was expecting that this would go to the late Chadwick Boseman. He's won multiple awards this season for his performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Huge affection for him. He had cancer and died tragically young. Um, so it was expected that he would win. But at the end of the night, uh, it was announced, Joaquin Phoenix announced that the winner was, in fact, Anthony Hopkins who is 83. He won for the father. 83 becomes the oldest actor to win, but he wasn't there. So um, it had been, you know, people had thought maybe the fact that the best actor was at the end was that there could then be a tribute to Chadwick Boseman, but he then didn't win. And Anthony Hopkins wasn't there either and didn't appear by Zoom because there wasn't a Zoom option. There were hubs in various places if you couldn't be at the awards, including in the UK, but Anthony Hopkins wasn't there. So you just ended with, the ceremony just ended really with that announcement of Anthony Hopkins. That's not to take away from from, you know, a fantastic performance. But yeah, it certainly wasn't what people were expecting. Tell us about the other winners of note. Um, well, it, they were kind of spread out, really, which, you know, is interesting. Nomadland obviously got the three. And then Daniel Kaluuya won the Best Supporting Actor. Um, so he was another one. Yu Jun Yu, who was the first Korean actor, won as well for Minari. So she gave um, an acceptance speech that really charmed people. And um, so they were kind of, other than Nomadland, no major winner like that. Emerald Fennell as well won Best Original Screenplay for Promising Young Women. Obviously, it's a very different year in that a lot of people haven't seen a lot of the films that are out especially in you know in Ireland they may start coming out now on streaming services but it's it, it, it feels very different given the situation with cinemas and so on. A fifth time nominated but no joy for Kilkenny. No, and uh, I, it's always kind of difficult to put it like that because we do have to remember now that Cartoon Saloon are, you know, they're world players. They are now, they're no longer, I suppose, the, the small company. They're now the company that continually get nominated for Oscars. And, you know, it's fantastic that they do. At the same time, they were once again up against Pixar, which is, you know, this world-renowned, absolutely massive studio in terms of animation. So they weren't successful. But I suppose what we do need to remember is that, you know, Cartoon Saloon now world players in terms of animation and they have to be applauded for that and that award went to soul is streaming movies the future for hollywood or at least a very very big part of it now well, it's how we're all going to see the films at the moment. Um, at the same time, I think even by watching the ceremony last night, people do miss theatre. The actors and the audience do miss cinema. And um, yes, you, you are getting to see the films, but you're not getting that big screen experience. And, you know, films like Mank, which you can see on Netflix, you do miss being in the cinema for them. So it's keeping the industry going. But I certainly get the impression, both from audiences and actors, that they would rather they were back in the cinema. So I suppose the big question now is, when will the cinemas be open and will the audience audiences go back because certainly a lot of these movies are made for the big screen but at the same time at least they're still being made and you know it has kept going so I suppose you have to be grateful for that at least. Very few clips of movies last night at the ceremony an unusual ceremony understandable did the event work? I thought it was okay. It had the look of kind of old Hollywood they produced it they said like a film so you had this um you know, small little tables in a room like an old Hollywood nightclub, which I expect is how Oscar or how actually live events are going to be for a while, where you're sitting at a small table with the people you come with and you don't really mingle. Um, and everyone there had been tested. They were masked if they weren't on camera. They were allowed to take off their mask if they were speaking. Um, they, you know, they had been tested and it was described as how films are being made at the moment anyway, where you're in small groups and people are being continually tested and so on. So, you know, it was fine. At least they made the effort to put on this live show. I don't think 
think anybody has any patience anymore for long form Zoom ceremonies. It was fine last year when, you know, the pandemic was new, but there was an effort made to put it on, um, which I think, you know, has to be admired. But absolutely, without the big musical numbers and the huge, big, glamorous red carpet, it's not the same event. So I suppose a lot of people hoping that we will be returning to something like the old style maybe by next year. Sinead, thank you. That's our arts and media correspondent, Sinead Crowley. You can judge for yourself, of course, RT2 will be showing coverage of the Oscars from 9.35pm tonight, and that's also on the RTE player. This afternoon, the government is announcing the programme for the decade of commemoration anniversaries for 2021. We're joined now by Shane McElhatton, who is RTE's series editor for the decade of commemorations. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. We don't have details of the government plans yet, but why would they be announcing these plans now? Yes, they are being very tight-lipped about what centenaries are involved, but it's no coincidence that we are at the business end of the conflict now. This was the worst time, the worst violence, the worst loss of life, but also the key moves to peace. So the key events we're talking about, the burning of the Custom House in May, the establishment of Northern Ireland in June, the ceasefire, the truce in July and the treaty in December. Let's start then with the the burning of the Custom House in May. What was the thinking behind this operation? Well, the Sinn Féin president, Eamon de Valera, wanted a spectacular. He wanted an operation so daring that it would get front page headlines all around the world. He wanted to show the world that the IRA could mount operations on a grand scale. So they went through options and they settled on attacking the Custom House, which was then the centre of British administration in Ireland. And what was the plan? Well, 120 volunteers were to enter the building spread paraffin, oil and petrol all around the offices, torch the place and be gone before the security forces could intervene. Fire stations were to be taken over beforehand to stop them reaching the fires too early. They'd evade capture by simply mingling with the crowds of civil servants fleeing the building. And how did that pan out for them? Well, it depends on your perspective. Um, Militarily, it was a disaster. The plan was to avoid direct confrontation with the army or police, so the volunteers were lightly armed. The problem was that no part of the city was more than a few minutes' drive from army or police bases, full of highly mobile, heavily armed soldiers and policemen, only itching for a cut at the IRA out in the open. So the building was surrounded before the volunteers could escape, and they were caught in in a trap. About 70 men were captured, along with most of their weapons. The Dublin IRA's capacity to wage war was almost wiped out. And as you say, De Valera wanted to show the world that the IRA could mount operations on a grand scale. Did it have that propaganda effect that he wanted? Well, he got his front pages, all right. Uh, The building was destroyed, but the impact of the burning on the administration was minimal. Senior civil servants claimed that they were all back at work in other locations by the following day. And it has been claimed that the burning of the Custom House shook the resolve of the British and led them to offering a ceasefire and a truce. It didn't. The British were already working to a timetable to get peace talks underway. And then moving on then to the establishment of Northern Ireland, May and June sees the centenaries of the establishment of Northern Ireland. Yes, um, the British government all along considered it a priority to establish Northern Ireland before any serious talks on a settlement could begin with the Doyle government. Unionists had opposed home rule for the whole island, but were persuaded that it it might work for enough of the Ulster counties to guarantee a Protestant majority, and they settled for six counties. And what was the reaction then among both nationalists and unionists to that at the time? Well, the announcement caused utter dismay among southern unionists who realised they were being left out of the equation, and northern nationalists dreaded the consequences of ending, ending up inside the new state. And then, Shane, the key dates we should be looking out for when it comes to Northern Ireland? Well, the Government of Ireland Act in December had laid the legal foundations. It formally came into being in May. But the key event, the one with the strongest symbolism and significance, 
was the formal opening of the new parliament by King George V in June. Now, the event wasn't only important because it was the endorsement by the highest echelons of the British establishment for the new venture, but crucially, the King's speech was carefully written to send a message to Sinn Féin that the British government was ready to talk peace. And that gave the Prime Minister, Lloyd George, the political cover to send a message to Eamon de Valera offering to start those talks. And then moving on, Shane, they set the scene for us for the ceasefire in July of 1921. Well, we had just over six months of the worst loss of life of the entire war um, uh, before conditions were favourable to talks beginning in earnest. Now, the war itself was in stalemate. The IRA had suffered heavy losses in men, ammunition and weapons, but the army and the police could not beat them without a massive surge in resources. And even then, the British government couldn't get a guarantee out of the generals that that massive surge would actually win the war. So de Valera responded favourably to the British approach. The Prime Minister consulted the British Army in Ireland. And in the Mansion House in July, on July 8th, agreement was reached on a ceasefire to take effect on July 11th. The delay was to give the IRA time to get the word out to all their units. I think it's important um, not to underestimate the significance of the truce. Um, The South African Premier General Jan Smuts, who had a considerable role in bringing both sides to the table, said he believed the truce put the Doyle and the British government on an equal footing. But it also has to be said that the period around the agreeing of the truce was marked by terrible violence in Belfast. For example, the 10th of July saw a level of killing and destruction so bad that it was to be called Belfast's Bloody Sunday. And then, Shane, this year's significant anniversaries culminating on the 6th of December with, of course, the the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Well, before we had the treaty, we had to have the the talks. And um, the months that followed the truce saw intensive back and forth negotiations between Lloyd George and de Valera about what basis a lasting settlement would be reached on. A lot of brinkmanship, walkouts, tantrums before the two men agreed on how the negotiations would proceed. And what were the various opposing sides' demands at that stage? Well, in essence, in essence, an offer from the British was a major advance on the original home rule model. They were offering the 26 counties dominion status, the same as Canada, South Africa and Australia, self-governing, but, and this is the breaking point, no republic, no existence outside the empire, the king remains as the head of state and Northern Ireland stays as a separate entity. The Republican position was, you either give us a republic for the 26 counties or an all-Ireland dominion status within the Commonwealth. The British wouldn't concede either of them. To just get to the table, they reached a compromise in a form of words devised by Lord George. And the words were, how the association of Ireland with the community of nations known as the British Empire may best be reconciled with Irish national aspirations. And on that formula, they began talks. And that takes us to the treaty, which we'll revisit in another day because we go through a door with that treaty that takes us into an entirely different era we certainly do Shane and, and I suppose later on in the year as these anniversaries come uh, come and pass it will reignite uh, debate on all sorts of sides throughout the year fascinating stuff Shane McElhatton RTE series editor for a decade of commemoration thank you very much for joining us From the 10th of May, three households can meet outdoors, including in private gardens, and a vaccinated household can meet an unvaccinated one indoors. Now, this is to allow grandparents in particular to meet their extended families. Inter-county travel, as you know, will also be permitted from that date. Excited families in Limerick, Cork and Leash have been speaking to our reporter, Ailey Sheehy. You want Granny to come? Soon. Soon? Who's going to come with her? Granddad. 
How are they going to get to Bantry? Maybe we can drive there. But they're going to drive to us because they're allowed to come and see us soon. Yeah. What do we do when Granny and Granddad come to visit? Maybe some digging in the sand. Oh, they'd love that. Wouldn't they love to go digging? Yeah. What else might they like to do with us? Up the road for a walk. Two-year-old John Robin Lenehan from West Cork making plans with his parents, Anya and Eamon, for a very important day next month. He will be reunited with his grandparents, Pat and Anthony Lenehan, from Newcastle West in County Limerick. I guess it's been difficult enough for both of them. Well, more so John Robin, really, because Shoiga was born in Just late January. Up, yeah. So like her whole life has nearly been locked down now. But John Robin, um, like we speak to them on the phone, but he'd often after a phone call, he might ask, uh, when are they coming to see us or are they coming over for a sleepover? And you have to try and explain that they can't. And like pre-lockdown, they would have come down, you know, any chance they got. We could barely get him to sleep tonight. He was so yeah. excited and, you know, hyper. Just are they coming soon? Are they coming now? Are they coming tomorrow? <laughs> Even the, are they coming into the house? Yeah. Like the idea of someone coming into our house is a bit exciting for him. So how important was this announcement? Oh, it's massive. Like, it really is massive. I mean, Pat used to sing a little song to, to John Robin. He'd have, she'd have him on his knee and sing away. Like, she's never had that with Joyga. Eamon's parents, Pat and Anthony, haven't seen any of their seven grandchildren since December. Our plan is, at the moment, but only one of them knows the plan yet. We're getting our second vaccination on the 12th of May. So we're hoping to go down to West Cork to see our son Eamon and Anya, his wife and their two children. And hopefully on the Sunday, Colm and his wife Neve and their two children will come up to us from Passage West. And then the following Monday or Tuesday, we hope to go to Wexford to see Aoife with her three boys. And Anthony, how has it affected yourself and Pat not being able to see your children and your grandchildren? We've used WhatsApp and uh, FaceTime, keep in touch with them and I suppose we're very lucky, really, that they're all in the country and we will get to see them. There's lots of other families and grandchildren away and they won't see them. They can't travel. So I think we're luckier than most. It will be an emotional reunion for Dorothy and Brendan Seely from County Leash when they finally get to spend some precious time with their three grandchildren, Oren, Tegan and Fia in Limerick. Oh, my God, it is beyond wonderful. We have not been able to meet and hug our grandchildren and our children since the 24th of December. We're in the wilds of County Leash, lovely Leash, and they are down in Limerick. And Dorothy, what have you missed the most about not being able to see them? They love our farm here and it's just a big adventure and hugs and cuddles. I really miss cooking with them, getting down the floor and being a fool, telling them stupid stories and teaching them Irish and just all the good stuff that I didn't do so well with my own kids because you're so busy, you're walking and rearing them. Any plans or thoughts of what you'd like to do when you see them? Probably do our very best not to uh, burst into floods of tears anyway, because there will be such a depth of emotion about getting to meet up with them again. Brendan and Dorothy's son Keith and his wife Laura are looking forward to making up for lost time. Well, we actually haven't told them yet. If we tell them now, they'll be like, we can go on Saturday. As I say, our eldest now is kind of feeling it and he's been upset about it. The young two aren't too bad, but they love their grandparents. They love spending time with them and doing things that mommy and daddy probably wouldn't do with them, but their grandparents let them do. They've grown so quick since Christmas. Our smallest lady is talking loads and our eldest has started hurling and there's loads of memories and birthdays we've missed, so we just want to make up for last time.
And is there any plan in place? No plan, I suppose. Once our kids can get to see their grandparents and have a bit of time with them, yeah. we're not too worried where it is, what we have to do. And Ailey Sheehy's report there, really bringing home how difficult separation has been for the generations. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.